Hello and welcome to the Paul Williams podcast. My guest this week is the former president of the Olympic Council of Ireland, Pat Hickey. Pat decided this week to break his silence about his arrest in Rio de Janeiro during the Olympic Games last August. He was held in Brazil until December when he returned home on bail. This is Pat Hickey's story. It's great to meet you again. Uh, it's twice in the one week. The f- and the reason we're meeting again is because you really <clears throat> did, you you made the news headlines all over Ireland this, this uh, past week when you decided to break your silence about what happened to you during the Rio Olympics last year. Um, and maybe I'd start by going through that again. Um, why did you decide this week to speak out? Had it something to do with the fact that, I suppose, last week there were uh, claims in the media that your arrest had plunged the Olympic Committee or Olympic Council of Ireland effectively into the red that it had cost 1.5 million and you were very much the the, the personification of the Olympic uh, Council of Ireland for nearly 30 years. Maybe start there. Yeah, well, what happened was uh, the OCI had their AGM and um, there was various figures put forward about the costs of uh, legal representation to date and all the media reports gave the impression that I was the single cause of the expenditure of practically 1.5 million. And that was not the case. Uh, what happened was uh, at the time of the crisis in Brazil, the executive committee created a crisis management committee and that consisted of three people. And those people then went their own way and they had authority to engage people in contracts and etc etc and this has nothing to do with me now and they for example they paid Arthur Cox and company solicitors 400,000 for legal advice they paid Grant Thornton 214,000 for the report they paid uh, the communications clinic 80,000 uh, for the advice and Wilson Hartnell WHPR 11,000 and then they paid Deloitte's 18000 for a report. And an IT company called Espion were paid nearly 40000 Now, my costs were completely separate from that in that there was an insurance policy in place that um, I had the foresight to take out over 15 years ago. And it's a policy that covers anything that can happen, directors and officers of the company for this very eventuality that I found myself in. And there's an insurance cover on that of a million. And to date, my costs in the Brazilian legal system and the lawyers was uh, uh, roughly 300,000. And um, so, like, I was just wanted to distinguish that I was not the sole cost of running up all these bills in the sense that I had no input whatsoever uh, into it. And I just wanted to clear the air on that because when I left Ireland, uh, before I flew out to Rio for the Games, I had left a very safe and secure bank account for the OCI with three million surplus and a fabulous property in Holt, County Dublin, valued three million with a small mortgage. Now, it's one of the things that you emphasised this week when you did decide to speak out was the fact that you are very much contesting uh, uh, you're vigorously and vociferously 
uh, protesting your own innocence in all of this. <clears throat> yes, um, that's what, what I cleared the air with first, that I am totally innocent of all these charges and um, I'm going to prove my innocence. My law, ter- my law team in Brazil are working flat out. Uh, uh, when my own solicitor, Giles Kennedy, came to Rio to visit me and at a meeting with my firm of lawyers, the Brazilian lawyers, the principal of that firm, uh, Arthur Levine, uh, he said to Giles Kennedy in front of several people, in his 45 years of practicing criminal law, he has never seen a case with absolutely no proof or evidence against me, like in my case. And then um, the the there's an interesting, if I could follow up on that, Paul, is that uh, there's a precedent for this. Uh, in the World Cup 2014, two years before the Olympics, the exact same thing happened to a guy from FIFA, a fellow called Ray Whelan, and he was the official ticket agent for FIFA. And he was arrested. Uh, unfortunately for him, he was held in prison, for the same prison as I was in, for three weeks, whereas I was 10 days. And um, it has taken him two and a half years and he was cleared completely. The judge of the Supreme Court said that it was a disgrace that he was even arrested or charged in the beginning. Now, when I was released from prison, the High Court judge who released me gave the very same statement, and it's in the documents that can be inspected, and he said, Mr. Hickey should never have been arrested and should never have been put in prison. He should have got the same treatment as his three colleagues on the OCI, that his passport should have just been taken for, for, from him and not given back to him until the police got the answers they wanted. But it was draconian stuff uh, to be uh, shunted off to prison. The One of the things you've said this week, so I just want to get this out of the way so we can establish where exactly you are at the moment, but you... The judge, the, the non-statutory inquiry ordered by the Minister for Sport, uh, Shane Ross, which is carried out by Judge Carl Morn, um, that report has been completed. It has been sent to the Minister. Now, you have concerns with that report. Would you tell us what they are again? Yes, um, <clears throat> I have not seen the final report. Uh, myself and my lawyers have seen a draft of the report. And the concern we have is nothing to do with what's in the report, because I'm not afraid of anything in that report, uh, is the fact that any my Brazilian lawyers have explained to my Irish lawyers that anything in that report that emerges can be used by the prosecution of the case in Brazil. And worse than that, anything in the media regarding the report can be used in my prosecution. Now, that's unheard of in Irish law. I was just going to say, the word extraordinary uh, oh. is my visceral reaction. My senior counsel and junior counsel could not believe it, uh, and they, they had to check again with my Brazilian lawyers that this was the fact. And the Brazilian lawyers said that they're ashamed that, yes, the justice system is in Brazil, that any headline uh, can be used from a newspaper, uh, etc. And as a result of that, they have said that this report should not be published until the court case in Rio is finished because this jeopardises my right mm. as an Irish citizen to a fair trial. One of the, in fact, one of the discussions we had when, when I, was, I, I, I talked to you first when we were doing the research for the, the, the story that 
we mm-hmm. broke uh, the news piece we broke in the Independent, Irish Independent, and for 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 News Talk, was that there was a headline about twenty four hours before your actual arrest, uh, which you said Hickey will not cooperate. Uh, within the Ross, yes. the, the Ross of us, <clears throat> you seem to think that that was one of the, that was an example that that and was significant. Not, and not only me, um, we think that the police investigator used that when he went to the magistrate uh, to get an order to arrest me, and that was a stark piece of evidence. Now, let me tell you the history of that because it's worth explaining. Minister Ross uh, arrived in Rio. And um, I had a meeting with him that evening of his arrival with his private secretary. And I had the first vice president, Willie O'Brien, with me. And we had been advised by senior counsel for our internal inquiry into the ticket situation, uh, how Kevin Mallon ended up with these tickets, that we were not allowed to have an outsider because we have to be autonomous and free of any political and religious interference so we told him no, he couldn't have his private secretary on it. But the next day, uh, if you like, a peace plan was brokered by Kieran Mulvey, the chairman of the Irish Sports Council, who, as you know, is a very experienced man mm. in that area. And um, he got an agreement between myself and the minister that we would allow his private secretary to sit on our internal inquiry. And that was to be announced the next morning by myself and the minister. But events overtook us in the sense that I was arrested at six in the morning and we were ne- never able to announce this. Now, Kieran Mulvey did a minute of the meeting and that minute is signed by him and it's attached to the minutes in the OCI office. So the proof of that is there. Now, I reckon the Judge Moran inquiry has cost the taxpayer five, six million euros and our internal inquiry would have been about 100,000 euros. And uh, it's an awful waste of taxpayers' money. And especially when all the principal players did not cooperate with the inquiry. Judge Moran got no cooperation from myself, from Pro 10, from THG, from the International Olympic Committee or from the Rio Organising Committee. And they all told him the same reason. Once there's an ongoing court case in Brazil, we cannot cooperate in case we prejudice a fair trial of any of the individuals who are before the courts. And that is a serious point of law. And as I said to you, our, my senior counsel here in Ireland was appalled that information like this could come out that could jeopardise a, a fair court case. Now, just for clarity, what exactly have they accused you of? David, well, the, the main thrust of it was uh, ticket touting. And uh, the ironic thing is that uh, the policeman who arrested me thought he would find a bonanza in my safe in the room and all he got was two tickets, which traditionally uh, for the closing ceremony, uh, when I'm in, not only me, but every president of an Olympic committee in the world has a driver and an assistant for translating. And traditionally at every games, I give the driver and the assistant uh, two free tickets for the closing ceremony to use and to thank them for uh, their service. So then he decided to add on um, uh, money laundering 
Now, this is extraordinary. Like money laundering, you have to have an office in 200 countries in the world and uh, all of this. And then the other one was tax evasion. But sure, I don't pay tax in Brazil or in Rio. But these charges, I don't think, yeah. exist in Irish law. There's no equivalent. equivalent no, no, there's no, there's law. no equivalent of ticket touting in Irish law. And anyway, these were ridiculous charges. And they, everybody, like, it was like a movie. The policeman thought he was in a movie. And he was, like, the media pay for everything over there. They paid the police when they uh, brought, arrested me in the morning. So they got to have the cameras up front. And everyone saw me opening the door in my dressing gown. I was humi- humiliated. Well, let's go back to that moment, because that is the moment. That was the uh, seminal moment, the one moment that everybody has seen here. And we've mm. seen that picture has been shown a million times. Mm. And it was very dramatic. Oh, it was dreadful. You were in... You were in a, you were in your I think your son's room. Yes, my son and his wife and my grandson had just left, mm. and I was in that room because I had uh, trouble sleeping with all the chaos, mm. and I went in there to grab quiet and peace, and then uh, he came to my room next door, and my wife answered the door, and then she told him I was next door. When you open now, the but door. the stupid, sorry, mm. the stupidity was my wife panicked, as any woman would have, because at the door was ten right policemen with the full machine guns and everything. It was just incredible. In fact, we've all seen that image. Yeah, right? and my wife nearly passed out, and she said, "Oh, he's gone home." She panicked, you know, and then you know what the policeman said? He said, "Mr. Hickey tried to do a runner, that he was gone." And then she realised the reality of life and she said, no, no, he's next door. And then he knocked on the door and I answered. And uh, that was it. So what, was going through, what went through your mind when you answered that well, door? Well, what through my mind was I got a heart attack on the spot and I collapsed because um, the whole thing just, like it was, it was like out of a, it was like out of a Doctor Who movie. Uh the, the full TV cameras shining in the door, the, the policemen some in uniform, but all the guys in the dark gears with the masks and the machine guns and a 72-year-old man with a bad heart. You know, what were they expecting? That I was going to take them on? I might have been a judo black belt in my youth, but I certainly, I certainly wasn't up to it at 72 years of age. So uh, then, interesting enough, they had a doctor in the group of 12 when they came to arrest me and the doctor examined me and he said uh, he had very serious worries about me that I could die and then he said no this man has to be removed immediately in an ambulance to the emergency what clinic. What were your symptoms? Pain in your chest? Massive or? pain in my chest and couldn't breathe and then I collapsed on the, on the, on the floor and um, then they told me to go in and get dressed and then um, I got moved then to um, uh, to an ambulance, and then I was taken for extensive exhaustive tests in a in a in a clinic. You've travelled all over the world. You've done lots of things in your life. You're seventy two years. You've done a lot of living. That had you ever experienced anything like that before? Never, never, never. And in fact, I'm hearing I'm hearing through the International Olympic Committee, and I have to say. The International Olympic Committee support me 100%. In fact, it was them who got the Brazilian lawyers for me. And uh, they found out the best firm in, in Rio and that. But they are so concerned of what happened to me in Rio 
that for future games they are considering putting a restriction in the city host contract that uh, no AOC members can be arrested without a proper and thorough, you know, investigation and consultation. Okay, if someone commits murder, they have to be arrested, you know, but for a, a, a thing like tickets, you know, which I had nothing to do with. But anyway, um, uh, it was just such a, a shock to the system. And um, Did you get to see your wife again after that? No, there was one terrible thing happened was when I went back in next door to um, to dress, my wife was there. So uh, the policeman had made clear that the minute the doctor had released me from the hospital, I was going to prison and that she had no chance of seeing me. Uh, apparently, for her to have seen me in prison, to get on a waiting list for the visit, it would have taken six weeks for her. A and waiting did, list. And did she get to meet you? No, home? never, never. But what happened was, when I went into the room, I then got my wife, and I said to the policeman who was in charge, I'm going into the, the bathroom. Uh, I want to say goodbye to my wife in private. You know, it was terribly emotional and she was distraught and I was distraught and she knew I'd got a heart attack and uh, I wanted to, you know, try and reassure her. So he tried to barge his way into the bathroom and I slammed the door uh, in his face and I said, this is my wife, please excuse us. And then we did our thing in the uh, in the bathroom because I never knew when I'd see her again. And then when we came out of the bathroom, he was rifling through her bag and he was actually holding her passport. And she jumped immediately and snatched the passport. And she says, how dare you look at my passport? I'm a French citizen. And he dropped the passport like it was a hot potato. He thought she was Irish. And then suddenly when he heard that she was a French citizen, an Irish citizen has zero clout, as I found out in Brazil. We have no trade with Brazil. We have no cultural ties. We are zero. But the French were a force to be reckoned with. The Germans, the Italians, the British. And uh, he then apologised and he immediately gave her back the passport. And then uh, I was taken off uh, by the police to uh, an ambulance and that was it then just listening to you telling that story it, it must have been extraordinarily oh. pressurised but also I I incredibly emotional oh terrible terrible and uh, they when I was brought to the hospital they had to sedate me and they were terribly worried about me you know and uh, now I have to say that the hospital the clinic they brought me to was top class and it was as good as any that you would get here. And the care and the attention I got in there was uh, was was top class. But then I didn't know where I was moving on to after that. And my God, when I saw the conditions I went into after the hospital. Tell us about the prison, what it was like, just physically what it was like. Oh, well, it was just horrific. It was just horrific. Um, this is a this give, give us a pen picture of this what, is what it's a, like. This is a prison uh, called Bangu, and there's ten, ten units in ten prisons within the prison, and we were in number ten, and number ten is where all the prisoners come in, and irrespective of your offence, 
you're staying there the first night or the two nights, murderers, rapists, everything. And then you, it, they determine which other prison you move to then. If you're a murderer, you go to prison six. If you're a rapist, you go to prison three or whatever. So the prisons are, are categorised along the lines Correct. Of, the, of the particular kind of crime? Crime, yeah. What, what prison were you put in? We were in, the, we were in this holding prison, number 10. And when I say we, there was two Americans, all to do with tickets, so, what, what, I was just about to say, and to, I was actually going to say, I was going to say, I don't want to be flippant, yeah. but was there a ticket-touting prison? Yeah, there was no, no, there was none, but there was two Americans, two French, two British, and two Irish, to do with t- re- ticket-related. Now, the others were in a completely different context to me. They were guys caught selling tickets outside the stadium, you know, caught red-handed. And, uh, but minority offences, uh, like... Here we were in this. But anyway, we had to be locked up 24 hours a day because they were afraid to admit us into the rest of the prison population. So were you in a, in a cell with these men? I was in a cell with the Irish guy. The two of you. And there was two Americans in the cell. And the Irish guy opposite. is Kevin Mallon. Yeah. yeah. And then there was two Americans, two British and two French. But we were locked up 24 hours a day for our own safety. And our cells were beside the right squad uh, guard room so that uh, they could protect us. Um, and some of the, uh, in the 10 days I was there, some of the admissions that I saw coming in, the sites that I saw, I never want to see in my life again. Like what? Uh, just horrific. People coming in on murder charges and threatening to kill the guards and the policemen and the whole lot. And it just, it was just... I presume it was hot and clammy and sticky there. Oh, unbelievable and mosquitoes flying around the place and the whole lot. But again, uh, I have to say that uh, you know, there's always hum- I'd never blame all the Brazilian people on this. There were some very good people. Uh, <clears throat> there was only two guards who spoke English and um, one of them had lived in the US and um, he wasn't really a guard. He was... Um, uh, you often see it in the American movies. You know guys who are in a long time and they become trustees. Mm. And they have a uniform and they have a badge, but they're not prison officers. But they're trusted to do menial jobs and they have a bit more uh, freedom than the rest. He was extremely helpful to me. I was the oldest person. No one could believe. that The prisoners I came in contact nobody could believe that I was... Uh, 72-year-old man with a heart condition uh, in these conditions. And uh, the prison doctor was worried about me day and night that I was going to die on his watch, on her watch. It was a lady doctor uh, with the heat conditions and, and all of this. And then uh, there was one funny incident in all of this. Uh, there was one guard who had very little English, but he was a full prison officer. He was a fellow about 35, 40 and he was the biggest fan in Brazil of you too. I didn't. Um, I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not the age group of growing up with you too. You see, so I, I know well who they are and the success they are. And this guy had a big, black bushy beard, and he was a gigantic uh, man. And one day I was standing in the cell, and he, I was a new prisoner, and he hadn't seen me, but he. Someone had told him that I was Irish as well as the other. And Kevin Mallon was asleep on the bed 
And the next thing, this fella let her, the guard let her roar at me. Sunday, bloody Sunday. And I, I didn't know the song. I couldn't remember. And I got, I nearly collapsed with the fright. And Malin jumped off the bed. And he says, Pat, relax. He's the biggest fan of you two in Brazil. And, and you know what that guy did for us? Uh, whenever he got in charge of the block, he used to let myself and Kevin Mallon out into the yard for 10 minutes in the sunshine. And that was like getting a million dollars to get 10 minutes in the yard in sunshine. And that guy did that because he he was... The only other word he had for Ireland was era. He kept calling me era. <laughs> and... Did you, what was your what was your contact with the outside world? None. You were held there for ten days. No right? phones in Bangu prison. No Bagu, phones. Bangu. Bangu prison. No phones. No radios. No communications, and no clocks. You didn't know what time of day it was. And then of course, nothing like TV or anything like that. So the only contact I had was the visit of my lawyer, who could come in at any time. And they were working flat out to get me released. And they had to go to the high court in Brasilia. And of course, they just nothing over there moves fast. Everything is so slow. It's unbelievable. And they were pushing and pushing and pushing to uh, get a judge to hear this. So the only other people that visited me was the Irish consul. And I have to say that I got very good support from the Irish consul and her staff and uh, they're wonderful people but they can do nothing politically their their hands are tied they took, they're there to maintain your to, to ensure that your human rights and are your, being observed, and your yeah. esteem and etc and um <clears throat> the um the uh the what would i say um the the um the government they're the ones with the political clout but i i realized very fast Within two days, the Americans were gone. Within one day, one of the French was gone. And the next day, one of the British guys was gone. And the only ones left were the Irish because our government had no clout whatsoever or didn't want to exercise any clout whatsoever. Was there any stage, uh, Pat, when you were in that prison, um, and I suppose the best way to describe it is a hellhole prison because mm. it's not what you would expect over this side of the world and the heat and the different culture and the language barrier and the lack of communication with the outside world. Was there ever a time when you were lying on the bunk in that cell thinking, Jesus, will I ever get out of here again? Oh, (laughs) that was in my mind day and night. And here I was, uh, a happily married man uh, for many years, 40 years, and... um, uh, four children, uh, five grandchildren at that stage, and I had two new grandchildren due in January, and it was breaking my heart that I might not get home for the birth of those two uh, children, and uh, thank God, uh, the my 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 I cannot speak highly enough of my legal team in Brazil uh, as as my legal team in Ireland. And then they came back with the news on the tenth day that I was uh, I was released, and it was the most extraordinary thing. The day I Kevin Mallon had been released two days before me, maybe three days, but he was in a lot longer than me. 
But the day I was really when when he left, I went way down because to have the comfort of another Irish man beside you. Yeah, I never met Kevin Mallon in my life before I met him in the cell, and I never had any dealings with him. And he's a fine young man, and he's not guilty of anything either, and that will be proved. But um, the day I got out, uh, it was amazing to see these huge guards, huge monsters, because what they had to deal with was incredible. And they started hugging and kissing me that I was released. It was a strange thing about humanity, you know? And they knew I shouldn't have been there. They couldn't believe it. The guy who brought me that night and admitted me there, who drove, drove me, and he he kept shaking his head, and uh, he said, I'd love to tell you you'd be out in 24 hours, but he says, the way the things work here, be prepared for a long stay. So when your lawyers came in that day and said, by the way, you're getting out. Did I jump for the sky? It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then... I got out and I was allowed to get an apartment in uh, Rio and um, the High Court judge, as I said earlier, who released me, said that that's what should have happened to me in the beginning. All that should have happened was that they would have taken my passport, confined me to Rio until the police authorities were satisfied with their inquiries and he castigated the prosecutor and the policeman for the way it was treated. Now, when you were, from the time you're arrested in your hotel room, you're brought to hospital, you're in the prison cell, when did the police interview you as part of their so-called, their, their they, evidence gathering process? Yeah, they did that, they did that, um, they did that before I went into the prison and when I came out of the prison. And, uh, I've lo- I lost count. I was interviewed by them maybe five, six times. And uh, what kind of questions were they asking you? What was the process like? Stupid, inane questions that uh, you wouldn't ask a 10-year-old. And I kept telling the truth and how the system worked and uh, that we as an Olympic committee, we didn't physically ever... We don't handle tickets. The agent handles the tickets. The agents goes to, they're printed in the United States. So the ticket agent for every Olympic committee in the world goes to the United States to collect the tickets. And then there's a reshuffle of tickets nearer the games time. And those tickets must be collected at the at the city of the games. And that's what, that's what happened with uh, Kevin Mallon. And uh, so like, uh, they're in court. Their inquiries were, um, you see, at that time, there was a big scandal had just started in Brazil called the washing machine scandal. Uh, they call it La Lavaja. And this is where they have uncovered a mass, massive net of corruption in the Brazilian government, in the construction industry, and in the, uh, in, as a, as far as I can see in every industry, because at this moment, half the Brazilian government is either in jail or in front of the courts going to jail. The current prime minister, president, has now been accused of a secret tape recording where he was agreeing to bribe people and all of this. So uh, my, my policeman 
who handled my case, his normal role was car theft. And they brought him in because he spoke English into the Olympic thing. There was a special unit created for the Olympic Games and they brought him in. And he had great ambitions of being promoted as a, on a, the back of this and also being promoted into this washing machine scandal to get publicity. So he suddenly thought he had one of these guys in me in, you know, bribery and corruption for its billions. It's looking now that the construction company uh, Uberact, uh, who did all the World Cup FIFA venues and the Olympic venues, that they've unearthed huge bribes and kickbacks and bribery and a whole lot. But on uh, on reflection now, I consider, now it took me five months to get bail, but I'm a lucky man that I got out in December because with the amount of new government of ministers being arrested since December to now, Mike, if I was still in Rio, my case would have been so low down in the pecking order. They would have forgotten about you. Would have forgotten about me and I'd be still in Brazil three years later. When you were told you came home on, in December. In, in, in uh, I, the week, week before Christmas week. When did you first find out that you were actually going to get bail and, and be allowed to come home? The, the, bail, the, bail, the bail situation was extraordinary as well. Um, my lawyers told me that the, dear, the heaviest bail they ever saw in a case in Brazil was €50,000. And then suddenly uh, mine was €400,000. And there's not a doubt that they saw the five rings and they saw money. And that's where that figure came from. And uh, I, uh, I'm not a rich man. By any means, uh, and no way had I got four hundred thousand uh, to put up for bail. So the International Olympic Committee came in, and through the World Olympic Committees, uh, they put up the the four hundred thousand bail. And um, uh, then the bureaucracy to get that money into the country, and to get. It, the money coming in was scrutinised and examined because they were in the middle of this washing machine scandal and they were afraid that there was people in the police force trying to steal the money and other or other people. This is the way, like it's Wild West. And uh, it took ages to get the money cleared and that everything was in place. And uh, my law team had in Brazil had to call in a huge amount of expertise to get all this done and the International Olympic Committee had to give in proof of where it was coming from and clearance and the whole lot and anyway uh, the day the day the bail was cleared and I was got my passport back <laughs> I couldn't wait to get out of town it was as you say a, a very emotional time on every level purely from the point of view as well that you've never been arrested before in your life and suddenly you find yourself being incarcerated and held for this length of time. But you had your grandchildren, your two grandchildren about to be born. <clears throat> yeah. Did you get yeah. home in time? I for did, them? I did. For, they their, were arri both, for they, their arrival. Thank God they were both born in January and uh, two beautiful grandchildren. So I'm now gone from five to seven and uh, a very happy granddad. What was it like coming home here to, we're here in your home in Castleknock, your lovely home, um, what was it like arriving back here that day? Well, it was very traumatic in the sense that the media 
had the Irish media had taken up camp inside outside the door and they gave my wife a horrific time. Uh, my wife was practically a nervous wreck. Uh, they were hounding her, driving in and out. They knocked at all the neighbours' houses to see could they get any adverse comments about me. I have some great neighbours and the neighbours just said, please go away. Uh, Pat is one of our dearest friends and we're doing everything to help him and his family in this terrible situation. So I came in to, um, I flew to um, uh, to London. There's no direct flights to Ireland. And then I uh, I got a great tip that the Irish media are very lazy. Uh, they hate getting up early in the morning. And, Heaven for a they How hate, would you possibly they hate that allegation? They hate again. being out late at night. Unless so, they're in a pub. <laughs> so, so I took the last Ryanair flight from Stansted to Dublin uh, on, uh, I think it was a Sunday, on a Sunday night. And the advice I got was there'll be maximum one out in the airport or two because the others, this was, I was landing, coming in at half 12. So by the time I came out, it would be one o'clock. And um, uh, there was no, no media there. It was too late for them. It was past their bedtime. <laughs> and But they were all, I can tell you, they were all outside the house the next morning. And then they 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 barracked me into the house the next morning. And I decided that just better get out and give them a photograph and say hello. And then wish them a happy Christmas and let me have a happy Christmas. I suppose even though it was a very, very, and is still a very stressful time, I suppose that you this would have been one of, the standout Christmases of your 72 years on this planet? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And um, uh, then, but like in between that, I had been receiving uh, good wishes from so many people in Ireland. And what I was particularly happy about was the amount of athletes who had been away with me in Olympic teams and officials like trainers and coaches uh, who had seen me in action and who had dealt with me. And uh, like uh, I was one in particular I was very, very happy about. And that was Katie Taylor and her father because I had a great relationship with them. And I was very, very instrumental in using my position on the International Olympic Committee to get ladies boxing on the Olympic programme. And uh, I not just me with the International Boxing Federation we succeeded I was their man lobbying at the Olympic level and look what happened as a result of that the beautiful day in London when Katie won the, mm. the gold medal and I was close to her mother as well and to see I used to get good messages from Katie and her family through my secretary Linda and uh, you know those type of things were worth a million dollars when you say about there was a, you made the ter- comment there just remo- <clears throat> reminded me of one of the comments you made earlier in the week when we were talking to you on News Talk um, about adverse uh, comments being made about you. From my perspective, what I can recall and, and, and certainly the rest of my team can recall is that once you were arrested in Rio, there seemed to be a deluge of very, very negative stories about you generally almost as if 
uh, almost as if people finally got an opportunity to express publicly what they thought of you from going back, say, 20 <clears throat> years. What was that all about? Well, uh, I didn't uh, I didn't see that because I was uh, uh, locked away from it. But um, it was amazing. Uh, I think that, you know, over I was nearly a president for 20, 30 years nearly. So obviously you made enemies during that period. And also you did things that people didn't agree with, etc., etc. So this was a great opportunity where they all came out of the woodwork and uh, they they had a go. And, well, I, suppose, uh, I suppose if you're there 30 years running a, an organisation like the Olympic Council <coughs> of Ireland, you have to be a bit of a hard nose. <coughs> well, to, well, look, you have to be a bit of a tough guy, would you? Well, look, of course, and you had to make decisions. And then a lot of people wouldn't like the decisions and a lot of media didn't like the decisions. But I put it to you this way. If I can give you a statistic, it's not so far back now to 2000 and the Sydney Games. And when we came back from Sydney, we had 30,000 euros in the bank account. And by the time we went to Rio, we had three million and I was in charge of the marketing. And what a lot of people forget, I was a volunteer. I never took a salary whatsoever in the 30 years. And in the last five years, the committee gave me a, a um, an honorarium, an honorarium, honorarium, and for five years, and and that was it. But <clears throat> what I'm very happy about is that I know that when I was in Brazil, I was investigated upside down and inside out, and in all the reports and everywhere, there has been no question of any misappropriation of funding of anything like that and our accounts were audited by the international firm Mazars for 29 years we always received a clean bill of health we were audited by the Irish Sports Council by the International Olympic Committee and by the controller and auditor general once and a clean bill of health given by him so like I have walked away with a very very clean record which I'm very proud of which is why you are so convinced that, you know, you will be cleared of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there is absolutely no proof of what I'm being accused of. It's just bizarre. Did you find that when this happened to you, that you suddenly found yourself becoming a bit of a pariah, that nobody wanted to know? Did a lot of people abandon you? In Ireland? Mm. Yeah. Well, put it this way. If it, to finish off with the minister's representation, if I could put it this way, one of my best friends in the Olympic movement is a German. And he told me when I was released uh, that if the German sports minister, if this happened to him and the German sports minister was in Rio, the German sports minister would have camped out in the front of the government offices to get him out of jail. And he certainly would not have gone back to Germany. And that's a very significant statement. And I'm sure it would have been the same for the French and the Australians, etc. I suppose it's probably a very obvious question, but were you disappointed? Again, going back to the point, like I'm, I'm talking about, I was here, I didn't know you at the time, obviously, but I was watching this here in Ireland. Um, and it really does seem like everybody did mm. leave you. Yeah. That, that must have been very disappointed <clears throat> having been a mover and shaker all your life. 
that oh, you were totally. suddenly found yourself being abandoned. Totally. Um, and isolated. I found out who my true friends were uh, in that period. And uh, certainly, um, you know, uh, like, you know, people... I don't know whether it's the poppy syndrome when they Irish mentality of when they get up there at the top, then they want to chop your legs off or whatever. But there was a lot of that element in it as well. And uh, I, uh, I, as I said to you the other day, I haven't, um, I haven't delved into what was written about me in detail. But my, we had a special in my law firm here, had a special unit keeping track, and have kept everything, so that at the right time we can decide what to do but you're talking about fighting back because obviously your reputation means a lot to you like everybody yeah, else yeah absolutely totally totally there was one story I heard um, about a prominent I, I better not name him but it was one prominent person in the Irish sporting field who was close to you who I believe when uh, you were on the telephone to some of your colleagues in the IC uh, the OCI that he actually absented himself from the room he didn't even want to be in the same room yeah, the that's, phone where, where you were being spoken yeah, to on the phone. Yeah, that's and I was speaking from Rio. Yeah, and I was very disappointed about that. Why did Extremely, he do that? Do you think? No idea, no idea. And I would have been his biggest supporter and friend at the time, and uh, I was shocked, absolutely shocked about that. And um, but you know, for 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 a guy like that, uh, there was also very positive guys who stood by me a hundred percent and the whole lot and. Uh, yeah, one never knows. Because it does seem to be this sort of phenomenon, and I've seen it myself and I've seen it in the media, it's like the herd of independent minds. Mm. The herd runs off in a particular direction and everybody runs in that direction. And if you go, you don't want to swim against the tide. Yeah, Hickey well, is guilty. Hickey is dodgy. Even though Hickey hasn't been proved either one way or the other, whether he's guilty or innocent, uh, and when, they just dump you when you're down everybody wants to kick you and uh, but like all all my my international colleagues what a different attitude they had and you're still in the international olympic Absol- committee absolutely 100% and they all went totally on the basis of the presumption of innocence and everyone is entitled to the pres- presumption of innocence and uh, uh a lot of people here obviously rush to judgment too quickly. Well, the fact is, and this is an inescapable fact, and I'm taking you very much on face value, but the, the, the charges that you face in Brazil do not exist in Irish law. Yeah. Well, They're not even an offence here. The, 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 the ticket touting, I think there's only two countries in the world that's an offence, Brazil and someplace else, I, I can't remember. And... Uh, uh, this is the joke of the whole thing. It's not an offence here. And, uh, like, I mean, but I'm not even involved in that. Uh, the, the the ticket agents, they package... Um, what, what, the Brazilian, what the Brazilian police found very difficult to understand, they couldn't understand a package deal. In other words, there's a ticket for the opening ceremony. The tickets for the opening ceremony were about £1,000, €1,000. Uh, and all ticket agents around the world put packages together for corporates. So in the package is first-class air travel to Rio, five-star hotel, transfer to matches, meals, dinners. So say that package becomes 
6,000 euros. The Brazilian police were maintaining that that's a, a profit of 5,000 on the sale of a ticket. They couldn't understand this. Apparently, package deals don't exist in Brazil. And this is what happened in the World Cup FIFA two years before with the, with the Ray Whelan case. He was doing the same thing on behalf of FIFA. And there was obviously, there was something in the World Cup where there was bad blood with the police and with the ticket sellers. And then I was a recipient of uh, whatever happened then two years later. I was the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Just before we finish up, I have to ask you on a more lighter note. I, I, and you very kindly invited us uh, here to your home. Uh, I see the photographs of yourself and your wife on the wall with the Queen, 2012. Um, the Queen of England. Yeah, the Queen of England. Okay, with two of the, up with the Queen of Ireland. <laughs> with, the, with the two, uh, <laughs> the two um, popes, Francis and John Paul. But I see you, I, I just wanted to ask you a few of the little stories behind them. Uh, again, to lighten the mood, um, you're standing there with... Pope Francis, and it looks like to me, um, it looks like the two even known each other for ages. But you're having a right good laugh. But what was that about? Yeah, it was very funny. Uh, I never met the man before, a lovely man, and we had. When I say we, I'm president of the European Olympic Committees to fifty countries in Europe, and our head office is in Rome, and the Italians organised an audience for the fifty countries with uh, Pope Francis and uh, I was I was uh, with him at, at that time and I was introducing most people coming up but then we had a little chat and just at that point that day uh, that afternoon Ireland were playing a rugby match against Argentina and the Pope was a big soccer fan as you know uh, but I don't think he knows too much about rugby, but he knew well there was a match on. And I said to him, uh, Your Holiness, you haven't got a prayers chance today of winning this match. We're going to hammer you. And he burst out laughing because he wasn't used to people, you know, saying things like that. All these things are very formal and pain in the neck for him, you know. And he thought this was spectacular. So we had a great laugh at that. You go from him then, the uh, El Papa of the Catholic Church worldwide, to a, a man who's a little bit more controversial, Vladimir Putin. Yourself <laughs> and him seem to have got on pretty well, for looking at the photographs, anyway. Yeah, I got criticised uh, for my relationship with uh, Putin. And uh, um, the as again, back to being president of Europe, Russia is the biggest country in Europe and the biggest member of the European Olympic Committees. And I was a strong proponent of, if you remember, lots of countries wanted to ban the Russian athletes from taking part in Rio. This again because has, been of a, the drug. has been a perennial problem with the Olympics, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. The sort of geopolitical issues yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah. and political That's interference. That's fair to say that. East versus West. And I supported totally the Russian athletes being allowed. You can't condemn all the athletes for the sake of the few that are caught. So lots of people didn't like that I was vocal on this way but apart from that I had known Putin over the last uh, say eight to ten years in that very unusual uh, his sport is the same as mine judo and he's the patron of the judo federation in Russia and the world judo federation 
and I meet him at tournaments, etc. And we know all the technical language of the... Now, he, he is not an honorary black belt. He's a fighting black belt. Like, he didn't get this in a picture postcard. Mm. You know, he's a real player. And uh, we'd be talking about the, the stars of judo and the whole lot. So, like, that relationship, you know, uh, built up between us. So any time I was in Russia on business, uh, uh, I invariably got an invitation to come and see him in the Kremlin. So I had the privilege of being uh, twice there to see him and once to have dinner with him, but not just us on our own. There was about five or six other people, which was a great, great honour and a great privilege. Would you, look forward to, would, you, would you look forward to seeing him again sometime? I certainly would. I certainly would. And let me tell you this. Um, I know for a fact that the Russian government made representations on my behalf, the Polish government made representations on my behalf, and um, uh, there was one other, uh, through their ambassadors, I think it was the Spanish government. And the Spanish, the Russian, yeah, and Polish governments made their representations on your behalf, their ambassadors, and the Irish Maybe it's not the Spanish, it's definitely the Russians were active and the Polish were active. But the Irish didn't. Well, I don't know what they did, but they, I didn't see any real work. Well, in their statement to News Talk, um, following your interview... Yeah, they, they got the no, ambassador. No, they said, they said that they got the, the consular officials to ah, ensure yeah. that you were in good but, nick. No, yeah. But there's a difference between me being in good nick and getting out of jail. Now, the consul was fabulous. She was a lovely lady and her team were really excellent. And by the way, I was very down. I was living in an apartment of my own. And walk in the streets of Rio, like it's you know it's like being locked in a luxurious place of a beautiful city like Rio. But I was restricted because it's a very dangerous place, and you could only go to tourist areas nearby me. But you couldn't go anywhere else in the city with the favelas and that. I'd be murdered, slaughtered. But um, the when I was in the position I was in, you need something at prime minister level. Prime Minister to Prime Minister, President to President, or Minister to Minister, and nothing like that was happening. They were zilch. I suppose very finally, um, and I suppose this is a superfluous question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Pat Hickey certainly seems to be a man who's got his mojo back, and you certainly seem to be somebody who's very, very determined to put this behind you once and for all? Yeah, well, look, at it. I want to get back to normal uh, life. I want to resume my role as a, in the International Olympic Committee. Um, but, like, I've got to clear my name in Rio and I've got to press to get this thing moved on or else forget about it will they drop the charges or whatever there's all sorts of rumors what will happen will they drop the there's some rumor that they might drop the charges because this washing machine scandal the lavage is so gigantic in brazil and it's in the billions that <laughs> my ticket thing is just zero now kevin mallon has a different set of lawyers than me uh, in brazil and uh, they tell him that they are absolutely confident that he'll be... All he did was collect tickets, you know? And uh, there's no evidence of any wrongdoing 
they tell me. So um, my but anyway, my law team are working on my case. So I need to, if you like, I'm in limbo at the moment. So I just need to get everything clear so I can get back to normal life. But it's it's changed my life fundamentally. Like I'm 72 years of age. I've got a dicky heart and I've got now seven grandchildren. And I'm now going to spend an awful lot more time with family and with enjoying my life. Because, hey, at 72 years of age, even if you're in good shape, you're still in the departure lounge, <laughs> whether you like it or not. And that's the reality of life. So I've got great advice from my friends around to say, Pat, you know, get a life, get out with your family, get out with your grandkids and just go off and enjoy life and whatever. So that's what I want to do. Well, Pat Higgy, thank you for your time and we wish you the best. Thank you very much, Paul.